maybe watch, binge watch TV shows. Anyone binge watch TV shows? Raise your hand if you have, you know, okay. <laughs> Friday, Friday, my, my beautiful wife left me alone with three children to put to bed by myself. Now I ask you, is that correct? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, she got to go out and she had fun. It was all great. And, and I put the kids to bed very, very easily, which I thought, okay, good. I count that as a trifecta when all three go down to bed and there's no crying, and there's no temper tantrums from both me or the children. Um, and so that, is, that was great. And so um, I, I took that opportunity to binge watch the TV. And, uh, and, you know, I, I had completed my, my holy studies of scriptures, obviously. I did that. No, I'm joking. I didn't do that. I, would, I just turned on the TV. I'm just like you. Uh, so anyway, so I watched TV, and I picked Home Improvement from the 1990s. Anyone remember the TV show Home Improvement from the 1990s, right? Tim the Toolman Taylor, right. And he always wants tools, or he, when he gets to a project, this project needs... More power, that's right. Very, very good, very good, yeah. Uh, and I thought, what about what the grace of God that I stumbled on this because I was going to talk about tools today. But yeah, so as I watched Home Improvement, Tim the Toolman Taylor, I, I was uh, reminded of the greatness of the show in that Tim loves tools, loves, loves, loves all different kinds of tools. The show used, the, used as a platform to introduce different types of tools, and tools all have specific purposes for them and for the project that he is going to use. But the problem with Tim is he always uses the wrong tool for the project that's before him because he wants he wants more power, and so he finds a more powerful tool uh, to do something that is probably very simple to, to get accomplished. And then what happens? Usually, the house blows up, something gets destroyed, it's not so great, hilarity ensues, you know, and you, you watch again for the next 30 minutes and repeat. But every now and then, Tim can pick a good tool, a right tool, and a right, right group of people to help him, and when he picks the right tool for the right job, with the right people helping him, masterpieces can be, can be made. I remember he made the man's kitchen, and it was this wonderful kitchen. Not that it has to be a man's kitchen, but that was the 90s, and that was the show, and it was okay to say that. It was the man's kitchen, and it had a grill, and it had all sorts of stuff in there, and it was wonderful. Now, it kind of ended in destruction because it didn't work, and so that's probably not a good idea, good, good example. But he also built a closet for his wife, uh, and for him, and it was an interactive walk-in closet that played music and displayed his shoes and did all that other stuff. I think that one turned out okay. He created a lawnmower to race Bob Vila, and not just any lawnmower, but like a get-you-some lawnmower. I think that ended in destruction too. But what I'm trying to say here is the right tools, the right people, with the right job, a masterpiece can happen. Today, we're going to look at Acts chapter 9, and we're going to meet a tool, uh, Saul, and, um, but he's not just any run-of-the-mill screwdriver or whatever. Saul, is who we know to become Paul, does amazing things for the advancement of the church, but where we find him here in Acts 9, his name hasn't changed yet, he's still Saul. And he's ravaging the church, it says. He is in open rebellion. If you've got your journals, write that word down. Open 
rebellion. He is in an open rebellion against God, using his talents, his skills, his prominence as a, as a Pharisee, as, as a religious muckety-muck. He's using all of those, those things that should be good, those, those, those things in his tool bag, those things that should be good to ruin the lives of people. And not just ruin lives, kill people. And not just kill people, lead people who have professed a faith in Jesus Christ into a reverse confession, blasphemying against the Holy Spirit to say, no, I don't believe in Jesus. He's actively leading them through that. And the dangerous aspect in all of this that we will see is that Saul is firmly believing he is carrying out divine righteousness, that he's doing it for God, that he's doing God a favor. Let me tell you something. If you ever find yourself thinking that you're doing God a favor, just stop because it's probably not the right thing to do. But he thinks he is acting out God's righteous hand to snuff out these people who are professing Jesus, to stop this movement. And while in the midst of this open rebellion, Saul becomes the object of Jesus seizing the moment. Remember last week I talked about seizing divine moments. You don't have to say that Jesus seized a divine moment because he is divine. So any moment he seizes, <laughs> divine. But he seizes the moment. He seizes, I want that word, seizes Saul while he is still yet rebelling against him. Maybe that's where Paul got it for Romans 5. For this is the love of God that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. On his way to, to where he was going in open rebellion, he is seized by the power of a great affection by Jesus himself chosen by Christ to be the right instrument, the right tool for a divine purpose. And that's what we're going to learn today, my friends. We are chosen and fashioned for a divine purpose. And that may be a review to some of you in this room who have been in the faith, who have, who have matured in the faith. You understand, like, yeah, absolutely, I get that God chose me and, and that there's a purpose and a plan for my life. And that, so today may be a review. For some of you, this may be the first time you heard that. But no, nevertheless, it is the truth. If you profess a faith in Jesus Christ and have received the Holy Spirit, you are gifted. You are talented. There are things in your life, experiences, skills, that God has worked in you for the purpose of advancing the gospel. You are in this room and in this church and in this community for the advancement of the gospel and gifted to do that. We just have to listen and figure that out. So as we look at Saul's interaction with the, with the divine Christ uh, and that we're chosen and fashioned for divine purpose, I want to look at two things. We're going to divide up this passage. So hopefully, first, first service I didn't get to the second half, so <laughs> we'll see what happens. But uh, Acts, we're going to look at Acts 9, verses 1 through 19. The first half, I want to focus in on what does it mean to be chosen by looking at Paul, looking at Saul, looking at him. I'm going to say Saul and Paul, it's the same guy, just I'll get confused, just know it's the same dude. And looking at what it means to be chosen by Christ, by how, how ch Christ chose him. And the second half, what it means to be a chosen instrument. What does it mean to be fashioned for a purpose, to be put together for a specific purpose from God. Are you all ready? Ready faces? Seeing them? 
Let's open up those books, Bibles. Open those books like I'm teaching a class. Let's open up the Bibles to page 1090. Uh, that's the Pew Bibles or your regular Bibles, Acts 9, 1 through 9. And let's hear what happened to our buddy Saul as Jesus met him along the way. Chapter 9. Remember, I'm not allowed to move from the podium. How am I doing? We're doing good? Stand put. Stand put. Right? It's a little odd. But here we go. Okay. If you start falling asleep, I will throw things. I will. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, here we go. Maybe. Uh, I may or may not, Jordan, have thrown an eraser at a student when I was a teacher. Things that would happen that would get you fired. All right, here we go. Acts chapter 9. But Saul, he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, here's the thing. And then he goes to the high priest, it says, the same high priest whom we've been dealing with through Jesus' trial, Peter and John's trial, Stephen's trial. Paul has been right along with it, has witnessed all the signs and wonders, has heard the things, and yet he's still breathing hatred and still breathing murderous rage. Goes to the high priest and asks him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So he wants to go on a road trip. Wants to go to the high priest and says, give me letters of authority so that I can go into those synagogues in Damascus, find any man, woman, whatever, and drag them out and bring them back to Jerusalem. Like he is a man on, on an open rebellion mission. Letters to synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, circle that, the way. This is referenced about five other times in Acts, this term, the way. Jewish Christians, Jewish people who became Christ believers, who were still allowed to worship alongside of their Jewish brothers and sisters in the synagogues for a time period, and then it, then it kind of got sour. They were called people of the way. How profoundly theological is that? I just blew my mind because if, if, if well, I mean, Luke's writing it, but if Paul said it, who is, who is openly against, if people who are openly against Christianity in this time are referring to the community of people as the way, they are inadvertently proclaiming a biblical truth. Right? I don't know for sure, but let's just maybe. And the, if you go to Genesis, and I, Genesis, God puts an angel blocking the way to the tree of everlasting life. In the English, it's blocking the way to the tree of everlasting life. And if you connect that to Jesus in John chapter 14, it says, I am the way to everlasting life. How awesome is it that that's their church name, the way. This is the way to have everlasting life. And those opposing them are not realizing the biblical connect the dots here. Men or women that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And nothing good is going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Like the angels with Mary and Joseph, this bright, brilliant light shones, shines around Saul Paul. And it's not angels. This visitation is more direct, more poignant, more to the point here, because this visitation is from Jesus Christ himself. And he, Paul hears a voice saying, because it's not really clear here whether or not he sees Jesus or is he just hearing his voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Underline that. We're going to come back to it. 
an important thing. And he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus. Profound I am statement. Anytime Jesus uses that I am, is that, what's that? Uh, where's Matt? Ego ami? Is that, the, that in the Greek? I am? Yep. Anytime that that's in the Greek, lego my ego. That's how I remembered it. Uh, that's anytime that that's in the Greek, that is an I am statement. That is a Yahweh statement. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, Jesus says, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with Paul stood speechless, hearing the voice and seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. For now Jesus is going to take someone who has been spiritually blind this whole time, and now is going to make him physically blind. So they led him by the hand like a child. Saul is supposed to be going into Damascus as the great somebody. And now he's being led in as that of a child and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and he didn't eat and he didn't drink. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what's going on here? What does it mean to be chosen by God? Christ hasn't chosen him to do anything yet other than to receive this, this vision. But what does it mean? Well, remember, Saul is in open rebellion against Christ. Open rebellion. He has severely misunderstood the signs. He has severely misinterpreted the message. And I think, as I have said before, him and some of the other Pharisees who are in such an open rebellion against Christ, they're scared. Because they have to ask the question that all of us in this room have to answer as well when we profess a Christ. Profess, excuse me, profess Christ. Profess Christ as our Lord and Savior. Is Jesus truly the person he says he is? Because if Jesus is not truly the person he, that he says he is, and we've staked all of our life on that, well then, we at least live a nice righteous life and we'll find that out later. But if we're wrong, and Jesus is the Messiah, and is the true Son of God, and we've lived our entire life in open rebellion against him in disbelief, well, then we're in a heap world of trouble. So you have to answer that question. And I think Paul, and I'm looking into the text here, so I've got to be careful. I don't want to speak anything in that's not written. But I wonder, I question. I wonder if there's a part of them that are really nervous that, because they saw, they, how could you not see what was going on? And so instead of dealing with that, instead of dealing with the reason why he's so objective to it, which is our own sin, he doubles down in open rebellion and, and seeks to ravage the church. Stephen, when Stephen was stoned, you got to see how horrible that is because Stephen is in the middle of a prophecy, of a prophetic word, reciting things straight from the Old Testament, and they shut him up. They not, shut him down, shut it down. Threatens people, Paul does, brings them in, has them renounce their faith, which is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Paul eventually will talk about that in Acts as one of the things that troubles him the most, not so much the killing of people, which is really bad, but actually having people forcing them to say they don't believe in Christ. He's fooled himself into thinking that God has blessed these actions, but what he's actually done is he's fulfilled a prophetic word from Jesus Christ himself. 
If you look at John chapter 16, verses 2 through 4, page 1072, I think it is, or you can just listen, Jesus is speaking to his disciples before he goes to the cross, and he tells them this prophetic word here. They will put you out of synagogues, he tells the disciples. They, those who are against me, will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. This is, this is Paul in a nutshell. And when they will do these things, it's because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember what I told you. <clears throat> so here's Saul, open rebellion, doing the very thing that Jesus said that he is going to do, which means that he doesn't know who Jesus is. He's, he's a lost, lost soul here at the moment. And that has resulted in this open rebellion. How many of you have ever been in an open rebellion against God? How many of you have ever been in an open rebellion against God where something has happened in your life so profound, so earth-shattering, so, so much in the valley that you have taken your fist, you've clenched them, you've raised them to the heavens, and you've said, why, God, why? I have trusted you. I have followed you. How could you do this? I prayed and prayed for this to happen, and it didn't happen. Where are you, God? I think every one of us have had those situations. I've shared this before. The most profound one for me was when Carrie had a miscarriage. It was our first pregnancy, and, and for us, you know, it, it was, a, it, I hate to say run-of-the-mill pregnancy or uh, miscarriage, but it was it was, it was not unheard of that it happened. Folks have lost children in their 28th and 30-week pregnancy, so we understand that. But we got to hear that baby's heartbeat and see the image of that baby on a sonogram. To us, that was our baby. That was, we're, we, we were already getting ready to name, right? And then, of course, the, the sound of silence of that sonogram, when they turn it on, you don't hear a heartbeat anymore. And going home and sitting in our living room the two of us in somewhat silence, and then going outside and raising a fist, I trusted you. How could you? But these temper tantrums, these open rebellion, this is us as children of God struggling with not having things go our way. And I don't say that lightly because the things that folks have experienced in this room it's not about not getting your way. It's about my world has just gotten shattered. How, how can I trust you in this deep valley? And the thing is, is that the longer we stay in those deep valleys of rebellion, the more we believe the lie that God is not with you, that God is not walking beside you through this. If Paul had just taken a moment to really listen and open his eyes to what is going on and maybe dealt with his pride in that the way that he has been teaching and the way that he's been thinking is not necessarily correct. It just took a moment that may have staved off that rebellion, but all things happen for, for God's purposes, so we got to press on. But for us in our deep valleys, if we begin to believe the lie we're alone, we, we forget, we too forget who Jesus is. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us who promises to walk beside us in any valley that we may be in. 
Sometimes the cure to our rebellion is not the removal of the thing that has made us upset. Sometimes the cure to the rebellion is truly trusting and leaning on God to pick you up and walk you through when you can't do it. So now Saul, in open rebellion, killing folks, murdering folks, dragging them away, Christ chooses him. One of the greatest takeaways that you can get today from our passage is that God's choice of you will overpower any rebellion you have against him. It doesn't matter the things that have gone bad in your life. It doesn't matter the things that you're struggling with. It doesn't matter how often you have said, I just, I can't right now, God, I can't. Christ's choice of you can overpower any rebellion that we have against him. When the God of the universe who created you as his own children turns his eyes upon you and seizes you and grabs a hold of you, the walls of rebellion come tumbling down. They have to. As you become aware of the true presence of Christ next to you, who's called you by name and has said to you your name twice and brings you into that relationship just like he did with Saul. Look at verses 3 through 7. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He, he does the double name call. This is not Jesus stuttering. This is Jesus like a parent. I've said your name twice. Make me say it a third time and I'm bringing down the rain, right? This is Saul, Saul, attention. And then he asks, why are you persecuting me? Which is also another profound question. It is not so much the way that I've always read it as, obviously Jesus is saying, why are you persecuting me? Because Paul is persecuting Christians. And of course, Jesus is like, you know, stop doing that to my people. But a bigger, deeper teaching for us to see and hear and what it means to be chosen by God, chosen by Christ, is that we are one with Christ. And so without, I'm not saying, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? When we place our faith in Christ, when we accept the choice that Jesus is saying, I want you with me, when that happens and we receive the Holy Spirit, we are in Christ just as Christ is in us and Christ who is in the Father. We're all one together. This relationship with Christ is being invited into the dance of the Holy Trinity. We, they want to be in community with us. And so whatever happens to one of us is happening to Christ himself as well. And that's something that Saul may not even have realized. He's just trying to shut people up. But Jesus has introduced himself to him as I am Jesus and why are you persecuting me, the one true God? To a Jew who understands Yahweh, that's a big question. Why are you doing this to me? And it's a great source of hope for all of us as well of the relationship that Jesus sees in us when he calls us. That we're not just being invited just to sit at the table, but to be a part of the family, one with him. It is a great reminder of what it means to be chosen by Emmanuel the Christ. So now let's fast forward. We are chosen and fashioned for a divine purpose. Chosen, meaning that God has chosen us in Christ, that he has along the way of our sinning has stopped us and brought us into the family, not just to see it at the table, but one with Christ. Therefore, if anything is happening to any one of us, they are doing it to God himself. Chosen. Valued. Now you're fashioned for a purpose. So what happens with Saul as he continues on? What has he been chosen for? Verse 10. Now... There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. 
And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And Ananias said, here I am, Lord. Now let's pause. I love the comparison between how Ananias, almost got away from the podium, how Ananias answers Christ versus how Saul does. Saul says, who are you? Ananias is like, this is my moment. Here I am, Lord. Here I am. Ananias, a disciple, he's going to get a direct message from Christ, hear Christ's voice, everything. He's like, ha ha, Peter, look at you. I don't know if he's against Peter or not, but I would be. I'd be like, ha, you're not that special, Peter. Um, And the Lord says to Ananias, rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas and look for a man of of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying and has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Now, poor Ananias, or Ananias, whatever. Can you imagine how excited he is to get this great voice and message from Christ? And then he hears the message, go to a house, you'll find a man from Tarsus named Saul, and just the color draining from Ananias' face as he begins to realize that this message from from Jesus is not, not the sexy message that he wanted. You know, this is a go to your enemy, love your enemies, go to your enemy, lay your hands on him so that he can receive sight. And so Ananias is like, uh, uh, Lord, um, don't know what kind of wine they're serving up there, but uh, you may want to uh, re-look at this again, because I know this Saul guy, and he's here to do bad business, and he's got the letters from the high priest himself to to really, you know, bring it all down. Are Are you absolutely sure? Now, that's my translation of what happens here. And Jesus interrupts him and says, no, go. For he is a, underline this, verse 15, chosen instrument of mine. A chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. He says, no, 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 go and do this because this guy here, this man who has done all this horrible, heinous stuff, I'm going to to just turn his perspective and watch and see how this is going to revolutionize the church as we know it. I'm going to have him with his skills go to the Gentiles. I'm going to have him with his skills go to kings. I'm going to have him with his skills go to the children of Israel themselves. Paul has been fashioned for this from day one. He is a Pharisee, a well-learned man, study man in the ways of Yahweh and the Old Testament and scriptures. He's a great person to go to the children of Israel and connect the dots. If they can look at him in such prominence and see how he turned his life, think about what could happen to those folks there as he goes armed with the truth. He's also a Roman citizen and a man of great prominence. And so, yes, he can speak eloquently to the kings. And yes, he can go to the Gentiles understanding their culture and understanding that they have multi-God worship and understanding how to teach idol worship to them and the one true God. He's been fashioned for this, ready for this. Now, that doesn't mean that all the bad stuff that he did that we don't necessarily ignore, because Paul doesn't ignore it. I am chief among the sinners, he says. I'm sure that, you know, when he got up to heaven, you know, God saw him through Christ's eyes, and he's fully, holy, clean, but maybe they had a conversation. So, 
prior to this little road in Damascus, let's talk about what we did here, you know? God's choice of us as chosen instruments never makes sense. If you think about the imperfection that you are and that I am, it doesn't make sense that I'm preaching here. It doesn't make sense how we are used. It doesn't make sense. But God never uses perfect people. Abraham was 80 and 90. He said, go have a baby. Excuse me? Moses couldn't speak eloquently. He says, go to Pharaoh and ask the ruler of the known world to set your people free. Yeah, sure, sign me up. Fishermen becoming masterful theologians and apostles. Lazarus was dead. You know, think about how he counted out of service. <laughs> and now Saul, who becomes Paul, openly ravaging the church against the name of Jesus, is now charged to carry the name of Jesus and expand the church beyond the reaches of the known world. Thanks be to God. Look at the reaction of, of Ananias. He's like, I don't think this is the right tool for the job. I think you are mistaken. This tool is rusty. There's something wrong with it. When I bought my first house in Florida, my dad, who's very handy, gifted me one of those tool sets that you get at a men's gift exchange that everyone buys. You understand what I mean? The multi-tool set. Please stop buying multi-tool sets if you go to the men's gift exchange. I have too many of them. Gift card to Chick-fil-A, something. So anyway, so you open, <laughs> you open that up, and it's a multi-tool set. And I may have used maybe one or two tools out of there. A hammer, a screwdriver. I'm not handy. I don't do things. There's a hole in my wall because I used a drill instead of a screwdriver in my brand new house. It's right there for everyone to see. And so in Florida, I, I used it and then I left it outside. I left the whole thing outside forgetting about it. And in Florida, they have humidity. And so metal things tend to, you know, rust. And so that brand new tool set with all those tools rusted over over the maybe years that it was out there. Could have been years. It was years. It was years, totally. I kept walking by it and thinking, I should probably bring that inside. But I still have those tools. The box is gone. It was crap. But I still have those rusty tools, and I've used them for the purpose in which they've been intended, rust and all. And they have helped me with small projects, to the most profound building beds for my children. Those tools that were gifted to me right from the very beginning. See, even when we think a tool is no good, as Ananias is looking at Saul and thinking, God, you got it wrong. In the hands of the master carpenter himself, its purpose comes alive. In the hands of the master carpenter itself, himself, the purpose of the tool comes alive and do great and awesome things. A tool used for a purpose is not, that it's not originally intended for is destruction. Saul destroying the church. But with those same gifts, with those same things that God had fashioned him with, just a turn of perspective, just a turn on the way and sending him off with the Holy Spirit now. Now he can see the rest of this passage. Ananias lays his hand on Saul, his like scales, he can see. And he goes on to become Paul who writes most of the New Testament. All of our studies in terms of how to understand Jesus and things like that, obviously the Gospels, but really the theology part comes from Paul. This guy who was killing people in the church, but now a tool being used as a chosen instrument, God's chosen instrument. And so what does that mean then for us in this room as we end this out? You are chosen. I can't. Oh, I want to. Here. I got to make a point, so I got to get... Everybody, that's my point stance. So, 
What does it mean for us in the room? What it means is you're chosen and fashioned for a purpose. You are gifted by the Holy Spirit for the mission of this church and this community. As we begin to discover the needs of this community, we will see the gifts come alive in this church because I believe God has pulled us all together to do exactly that. And not only for this community, but your commonplaces as well. For if you are a chosen instrument of God, a chosen instrument of Christ and fashioned for a purpose, everywhere you go is a mission field as I've been teaching and preaching the last few weeks to seize those divine moments and to know that you are a chosen instrument to act in that and create a masterpiece, hopefully, if it be God's will, to just do those things. And so when you go and if you're a teacher, teach to the glory of God. And if you go and you're a mechanic and build cars, do that to the glory of God. Save people from fires to the glory of God, right? It's firemen over here. Teach to the glory of God. I've already said that, Jordan. Don't get a big head. If you're retired and you're yelling at children on the front of your lawn, do that to the glory of God as well. Do all things to the glory of God as chosen instruments fashioned for a divine purpose. Seize that divine moment and be used by the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, I thank you for this challenge But really, remind us not only of our chosen status, Lord, remind us of our redeemed and chosen status, that you will use people like us in the midst of our open rebellion and sinning against you, in the midst of all of our imperfections. Oh God, you will use us. You will speak through us. You will guide us. Let us be obedient to your spirit to be led so that when we encounter a situation, a project, a person, that we would be used in such a way that they would see you and hear you call their name as chosen instruments for your divine purpose. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.